Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Amy Monaghan and welcome to the first podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Research website. Every month we will be inviting a group of researchers and experts to share their thoughts and advice on a wide range of topics which we hope will be of interest to early career researchers or others thinking about coming to work in dementia research. This week, our topic for discussion is managing a clinical and research career. Our first panellist today is Ioni Woolacott. Ioni, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing at the moment. Hello, thanks. Um, I'm a uh, Medical Research Council funded clinical research training fellow. Um, I was a neurology registrar until two and a half years ago when I took time out of my training to do a PhD at the UCL Dementia Research Centre. So my research is um, a basic science project looking at the role of inflammation in a type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. Um, And my research focuses on markers of inflammation in the spinal fluid and brain tissue, post-mortem brain tissue. So I do a mix of techniques um, and trying to find out specifically um, whether the markers um, are different in different um, genetic types of frontotemporal dementia. Um, so my research, that's the kind of basic science side, but my clinical side is that um, I do medical assessments and lumbar punctures for um, FTD research trials at UCL um, and also see patients in the cognitive disorders clinic at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery there. Thanks. Okay, our second uh, guest today is Timothy Rittman, who's a clinical lecturer at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, Tim. Um, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about your research and what you're doing at the moment. Thanks, Amy. So I'm in the final stages of uh, my career as a neurology registrar at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Um, but uh, I also do research uh, as a clinical lecturer at the University of Cambridge, which uh, I've just started over the last month or so. Uh, so my work looks at cognitive and imaging biomarkers in tau-associated dementias, particularly progressive supernuclear palsy, uh, and looking at how the um, underlying pathology and genetics influences what we see in uh, brain imaging and brain networks. Uh, so for my PhD finished in uh, 2014, uh, so quite a long time ago now, uh, and for the last uh, four years I've been carrying on a, a full-time uh, clinical career uh, and carrying the research on uh, along alongside that. Great. And our third and final guest today is Akin Nihat. If you'd like to introduce yourself, Akin, and tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment. Hi, thanks. Um, So I'm an MRC Clinical Research Training Fellow at the MRC Pran Unit at UCL. I'm in my first year of my PhD, and I came to be a Clinical Research Fellow at the unit really after my core medical training, um, where I then worked up a research proposal. I kind of split my time between lab work and clinical work at the moment. The the primary um, project for which I'm funded is a lab-based project where I'm trying to develop better cell models of prion disease, which causes a a very rapidly uh, progressive dementia. But I also do a fair bit of clinical work on the side, and I'm particularly interested in looking at the longitudinal progression of the conditions and clinical tools to try and predict progression uh, and objectively quantify that. Great. So those are our three guests today. Um, I'm Amy Monaghan and I'm a postdoctoral research associate at the Alzheimer's Research UK Drug Discovery Institute. So not a clinician at all, but I'm just here to help everyone else discuss what we've got to discuss today. 
Um, if you want to join in on Twitter or if you've got any suggestions for any future podcasts, you can use the at um, dem underscore researcher or the hashtag ECR Dementia. And obviously there'll also be a forum topic on the website, which is dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. Um, so the life of a clinical academic is a constant balancing act between the demands of delivering patient care and driving research that's relevant to that. And although they're complementary, there can often be a wide gap between the basic science and the clinical act uh, application. Um, so to start off, maybe Tim, you could start us off because you are balancing research and clinician side by side um, constantly. Um, how do you manage the tension between being a clinician and being a, a researcher at the same time? I think that's a, a, a very difficult balance to get right, to be honest, uh, and I'm not sure I always have. Um, I, particularly when you've, you've finished the PhD and when you've gone back into uh, clinical training full time, I think that's the most um, challenging time, or certainly it was uh, for me. Um, Basically, research becomes your hobby, so it's what you do outside of work when you get home and, and at weekends. Um, and it, what becomes very difficult is that when you're in a research group, you go to the lab meetings, you're in touch with people from day to day. When you're back in the clinical world, then you're very much cut off from that. Um, so I think the, the most important thing, and it took me a little while to figure this out, was actually to work out how you communicate with the people who are in your lab because uh, you won't bump into them as you would have done in the past. Um, so for me, I found things like Slack um, particularly useful, um, which is a sort of online um, chat-type forum um, website uh, where you can have a team of people that you invite and, and discuss things with. Um, and that means that even if you're, you know, if you're in clinic or you're on a ward round, you can still pick up the messages and you know, answer briefly between patients or something like that. So it's a way of keeping that um, contact going. Um, but it just does take up a lot of a lot of time, really. Yeah. Worthwhile time. Yeah, I, I think so. On balance, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I think you know life in general. You know, I've got a, a young family as well, so trying to fit everything in, um, you have to be quite uh, strict and um, plan what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, uh, and. And things like, you know, working out, you know, when if you've got a clinic the following day, staying up till one or two in the morning to do research is not a great idea. But on other days, it might be it might be possible. You know, that's it's it's getting that sort of balance right. Um, yeah, I think work life balance is probably something that all researchers need to learn a little bit more about. Absolutely. Um, probably a topic for a future podcast, maybe. Um, have either of you got any um, more ideas around managing your clinical and your research career or, or indeed keeping them separate depending yeah I mean I think uh, to be honest I'm, I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum to Tim in terms of in terms of where I am in my research obviously I'm in, in my first year having having not really done any consistent work as a as a registrar but in some ways it's quite refreshing to hear that it's still a problem that more senior people mm. have to deal with because it's something that I've struggled quite a lot with in the past and I think it's a it's a bit of a cliche, but I think probably the 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 single most useful technique I found is just to be ruthlessly organised as best as you possibly can. I think inevitably the the areas tend to bleed into each other as much as you try and separate them. Particularly if you're doing a clinical job that requires kind of quite acute commitments. Or for example, my 
part of my clinical role is to assess patients with prior disease and we can't always predict when we're going to get referrals in. So sometimes you simply have to respond to things and you have to put research to one side. So I think in trying to be absolutely as organized as possible and using every using every free moment to do something productive as opposed to just kind of you know tacking away at something that's not really getting you anywhere um i think the other thing that i found really helpful again kind of picking up on what tim said is to try and in some ways try and align some of your research work with some of the work you're doing clinically because if you have if you have kind of a shared space between them it makes it much more easier to communicate between the two and kind of keep your eye in on both I was just going to comment on a, on the work-life balance thing, actually, because I think this is a really mm. difficult issue, particularly when you're training as a registrar, you're learning new stuff all the time. Um, I'm in the final year of my PhD, so I've only got six months left, and obviously getting tense about writing up and things and trying to write papers and write chapters, and they're slightly different. Mm. Um, and also want to keeping hobby, hobbies going, just for insanity. One thing I've tried to do is um, block time, so which is difficult to do when you're clinical, but say, right, plan weekends and say, well, Saturday, I'm going to have Saturday off, but work Sunday. So that at mm. least you, you've got on your mind that discipline of, well, I'm not going to think about work for this period of time, but then I, when I am working, I'm just going to think about the work if I can. That's obviously more difficult if you have children as well to, to, to deal with, but um, to, to look after. But I think that's worked for me because otherwise you end up bleeding. Every, the work bleeds into your, all your time and all your thinking, and that mm. can become quite stressful. And obviously, um, as you said about, about kind of patients and, and things, part of my research is um, collecting spinal fluid from patients, and that is a clinical contact. But that although that's time consuming, that's beneficial because I'm actually getting samples for research so that there are benefits of combining the two together. Um, mm. It's just finding the balance between that. And we can touch on that a little bit because the next question is to what degree is your research and your clinical work complementary to each other? Um, so I only if you want to talk a little bit more. Yeah, so um, although the project is looking at um, or using molecular techniques, so I do um, ELISAs and, and immunoassays on CSF, Without patients, I wouldn't have those samples. So, so they are very clinically aligned. Uh, similarly, people who've kind kindly donated their brains after death to the Queen Square Brain Bank, I'm using their precious tissue to look at microglia. So, so I'm always in the back of my mind got these patients who I've met or who I know have donated this, and I think that kind of gives me and um, pushes me for on when research seems hard. Um, and patients inspire research questions as well. I know this is a bit of a cliche, but actually in clinic, you might say, well, for example. We, we've realised that quite a few people with certain types of genetic FTD have autoimmune diseases. Now, for me, that was really interesting. We have a few people in our studies, and I started to think about that. And John Rohrer, who heads the Genfi study that I work on, um, we've put a question now in the medical research um, questionnaire about what type of autoimmune disease that is, just to try and pick out that a bit further. And that's tied into my project on inflammation. So there is overlap, and, and things that seem interesting as a clinical observation might turn more into actually a mechanism of disease. And I think for a lot of clinicians, uh, even if they don't end up going into research, um, when they do a PhD or a period of research time, that actually develops their subspecialty as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been much easier for me coming now to um, sort out consultant posts to say, well, actually, I've got all this experience in my time during my PhD doing specialist research clinics, or specialist dementia clinics and the general memory clinics. Uh, and then it gives it puts you in a very strong position to then say, well, this is what I'd like to be on my job plan as a consultant. Um, but I, I think it's there. There are certainly some people who I who I know and who I've met and very good friends who are very much um, 
towards the research end and they sort of take the approach that um, you want to do as little clinical work as possible and really focus on the research and you're almost a doctor as a sort of token you know, um, title if you like. Um, my own view I think would be that you, you need to be a good clinician and a, a good researcher um, which, which is a challenge because it means you're almost doing twice the work. Um, but I, I really think that, the, that there's benefits of, of being a good clinician. Um, I think the question originally was about how well the research and um, clinical things are aligned. And I, I think one of the, when you go back again for a PhD into general um, training as a registrar, you do lots of different bits. So although my research is in dementia, you do peripheral nerve um, and headaches and epilepsy. Um, and all of those things develop you as a clinician and I think help you look at things in different ways and help you look at your research in different ways as well. So I think they're all valuable training um, to be the end product, I suppose, which is a, a clinical researcher. And um, Akin, do you have anything to add to that? I think, you know, I, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying, Tim. I think it's absolutely crucial certainly I'm seeing even at my early stage to to have some kind of clinical contact as well I think definitely you know my my work is very much a lab project and it's a project which has some very clear clinical benefits you know at the end of a long period um, but having said that it's really important for me to try and main, maintain the clinical contact because to start with I think you know through the research training you also, you also want to have some clinical training as well, particularly the type of fellowships that Ioni and I have. The purpose is also to get some clinical experience. Um, but also, I've certainly had a couple of occasions where I've been seeing patients and some interesting questions have arisen from just, you know, the odd experience or the odd um, phenomenon that you happen to see. And it's, and it's led to some quite promising work, actually. So... Let's follow that up a little bit um, and ask where you are drawing your inspiration for your research questions from. Is this coming from predefined projects? Is this coming from patients that you're seeing day to day in the in the clinic? Is it coming, as I only touched on before, where you are doing a little bit of research and suddenly there's a really interesting question that, that pops out of that? Maybe, Akin, you could take the lead on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think... The first thing I would say is I don't have it, I don't have complete control about my research questions at this point. You know, obviously, I I developed a fellowship proposal, um, and I'm aiming to answer certain questions. Having said that, a lot of the clinical work I do comes out of either discussions about interesting patients with colleagues, with peers, with with seniors, or I think basically looking at the literature and and seeing if there are interesting aspects that we can answer with with the data that we have and i think th i think that's something that i found that's quite important particularly particularly in our type of work where you are kind of trying to combine two careers you want to try and be as efficient as possible and some of that is really seeing identifying the kinds of questions that you're able to answer with the kind of data that you have for example a lot of my clinical work is based around a big cohort of patients with primacies who very kindly donated um, their time did assessments for us and we have a really beautiful data set there that is has the potential to answer lots of interesting questions which we've identified either through through looking at the literature or from just assessing individual patients and saying you know is this something that might prove useful to aspects of 
you know, finding out about the condition. Ioni? Um, yeah, I think where you, talk, you asked where we draw inspiration yeah. from. Um, I have to say that the generosity of the families that take part, I mean, I work a lot on inherited forms of FTD, particularly within the Genetic Frontotemporal Dementia Initiative, or GENFI, um, and, and we see people, individuals who are 20, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who are at risk of developing uh, inherited dementia. You know, they're 50-50 risk, mostly. Um, these people are, are well. They're coming, they're having lumbar punctures, they're asking questions, they want awareness, they want. They come to our support groups. And I think when you're having a bad research day or a bad clinical day, you just think, well, you know, the courage and the generosity of these people are actually pushing you forward. Um, and for them, that's when you want to actually answer the questions. So, you know, the common question is, when will I develop a disease? You know, there's a mutation in my family, when will I get this? Well, we don't know that well enough. There is therefore needs to be research into that, and that's what's happening. And I think I think that the patients themselves can generate things. But but also, um, you know, as you said, looking at questions that other groups are answering, and you think, well, with this amazing data set, what can we actually do with that? What's meaningful, and what's not going to be wasteful of data? Um, and I think there's a lot of lot to be said for um, having. So, for example, I talk about why we use lumbar punctures for research, because lots of people don't like having lumbar punctures, unsurprisingly. And actually, the questions patients answer, or their families asked at the support groups, um, really informed how we need to explain that better to people, and f in fact, inform people about what spinal fluid does, etc. So I think there's a two-way process, and I think that's really important. Yeah, definitely. I'd agree. And I think going and meeting people with the disease that you're studying I think is really important even if you're not a clinician all these diseases have support groups I've done a lot of work with the the PSP association um, and uh, with Alzheimer's Research UK uh, and it's really valuable actually to to see what people's lives are like to, to talk to them and I think firstly that gives you the inspiration to to think well you know these are terrible diseases which need addressing and need an answer um, and I suppose that's where the you know, my ultimate motivation comes from uh, and then yeah there are sort of aspects of the disease which you look at and think mm, you know why why are the eye movements funny in in PSP what's that telling us about the disease what's that telling us about you know, where this starts and how it progresses and things like that um, so I, I think it yeah I think it does start with seeing how just how bad you know the human cost of of, of dementia um, and seeing that for yourself and what that is yeah yeah and I think I would emphasize to people myself that it is really good to go and do these outreach events they're possible mm. even if you're not a clinician I've been into care homes and things and just talking very basically about the research that you're doing to people either living with dementia or their carers or their families and um, sometimes it's just the fact that you're doing something is all that that they need to know um, so that's really good um, so uh, our last question, actually, it's gone, it's flown by our first podcast. Um, what advice would you have for someone working in clinical practice who wants to take up research? So Tim, I'll come to you first, full circle. That's a really, that's a difficult <laughs> question. I think firstly, you've, you've got to really want to, want to do it. Um, and if you're not interested in, um, a, a, a career in research, that's fine. Don't do it. Um, if if you're if you're thinking about it and you're not sure, try and get some experience. Um, and 
try and choose your research group carefully. I think that can be quite tricky when you're sort of looking from the outside in. Um, but try and talk to a few different people who are doing things that you're interested in and don't take the first offer that comes along. Um, and talk to not only the, the bosses, I think people tend to go and talk to you know the, the PIs who will give you this amazing picture of how wonderful their research group is, which may be true, um, but go and talk to the people who are actually doing the research as well um, and try and find out what the lab group is like. Um, <clears throat> Uh, what other research, uh, what other advice would I give? Well, uh, certainly um, think about the, the time commitment um, because you're essentially doing two careers. Um, think about some of the um, financial implications as well uh, because when you start to do a PhD that your, uh, um, your wage does drop a bit. Um, and um, think about where your support and advice is, is going to come from. Uh, there are some departments which are very well set up. Um, and I'm incredibly lucky in Cambridge that people are very encouraging of people doing support. Um, and, but try and find people who are, who are on your side who will help mentor you through the, through the process. I think some of the advice you've uh, given there is not just for clinical researchers, it's for all, all researchers Absolutely. <laughs> um, can take some of that on board. Um, Akin, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think probably someone, someone at my stage, you know, I, I went into this process having come out of core medical training. So I, I had a strong idea that I wanted to do research and I had a particular set of skills that I really wanted to acquire. You know, I, I dabbled with it a little bit in an integrated BSc as a lot of medical students, for example, will do. Um, and it was really a matter of saying, well, I'm really, really keen on it. And I don't think I'm going to be able to get that level of experience if I leave it later. So I would certainly reiterate what Tim said about essentially having a really clear idea of why you want to do it. Uh, and trying to gain as much experience as you can early. That's not to say if you don't get early experience, it's not an option, but it's always going to stand you in better stead. Um, the other thing that I really want to pick up on is the benefit of a really strong mentor. And I think that's ideally someone who doesn't necessarily have a particular stake in what happens to you, but is potentially someone who is in a similar kind of area or someone who's in a position you would quite like to emulate. Uh, and can give you objective advice, both on, you know, choosing a research group, for example, or on these difficult decisions that you have to make along the way that it's not always very clear uh, which option you should take. I think a mentor can be very good as well at sometimes telling you what not to do. Mm. So mm. you don't have to do 100% of things all of the time. Actually, that one can wait, especially in your case, where you're trying to balance two careers at the same time. Um, Ione? Um, I would definitely agree, well, obviously with both of you, but Tim's point in particular about speaking to people who are either currently working or have worked in a department at a junior level. So when I did my academic clinical fellowship post, um, I, or when I was actually when I was applying for them, um, I didn't know where I wanted to study. It was a point of um, when I was applying for core medical training after my um, F2 or F1 year. Um, and I actually contacted, I looked up on the website and contacted via email and then actually asked if I could speak via phone, which I think is quite helpful to mm. people who'd worked at different centres. And that was really helpful just to get an idea of what kind of lab it was, whether they, what they enjoyed, what was difficult, what their supervisor really was like. Um, 
but so that was really inc incredibly useful. The other two things I'd say is one is that everything takes longer than you think to set up. And um, I was applying for my clinical fellowship while I was doing my first registrar post. It was very stressful. It was a lot of late nights. And I think, um, you know, you've got to give yourself rest occasionally. You've got to plan ahead. Um, and then the second thing is um, don't be afraid to contact people who you think are quite senior and you think won't respond to you. Because what's the worst that can happen if you email someone? They'll just ignore you or say no. I might try twice. I think probably after twice, <laughs> I'll leave it. But a lot of people don't even make that step because they're worried they'll get rejected. But actually, if you're keen, if you want, I mean, I did some summer projects when I was at medical school. If you want to give up your holiday, you want to give up a weekend, if you really want to do it, people are always looking for keen people to do it. And if you don't email them, you can never even start. So I would say don't be worried about that. Just go for it and mm. make a cogent case for why they should take you on. But, but go for it. I think that's particularly true in medicine because we have a very hierarchical structure yeah. um, and it, the, the consultant or the professor can seem a long way away. Um, so I'd, I'd certainly echo yeah. that. But they yeah. were us once, I like to think. Definitely. I mean, I think I, <laughs> I, you know, I've never had a bad experience from contacting someone mm. in that kind of context. And, you know, it also kind of leads into having to develop a little bit of resilience, yeah. which is something that we yeah. all have to do because... You know, you get to a point, particularly in the medical system, where, as you say, you have a hierarchical system, you have a set of jobs, you do them, you know, you you do them successfully, you're happy with that. But having to break out of that and kind of be a bit more creative means you're more likely mm. to fail and get rejection. Mm. And you have to develop a bit of resilience about that as well. I was going to make a final point about resilience. I actually mm. found the research style of life surprisingly much harder than, than medicine. I mean, medicine is very stressful, it's mm. long hours, and you have very difficult cases. But actually, it's much more consistently stressful than research, where it's emotional highs, but also emotional lows, the peaks and the troughs. I was lucky to learn this quite early on because I did an academic foundation post. So that four months, it was only four months, I thought, you know, I'm going to cure emotional neuron disease. And I thought, I'm just never going to get anywhere in the same day, you know, a week. And I think that's something that people need to know who want to go into research, that mm -hmm. there are incredible rewards from doing it. But it can be very hard, long hours, you know, experiments can take weeks and keep failing, but that resilience to keep going, you know, you just really need to have that. One of the things actually uh, along those lines that I, that gave me a little bit of inspiration was, I don't know if um, you've heard of it, was um, the publication of CVs of failures. Uh, so I, I can't remember who initially started this idea, but I think it's absolutely brilliant because it was uh, a series of quite prominent people, professors or kind of adjunct professors and so on, who essentially published CVs in which they only listed things that they didn't successfully obtain so grants for example rejected papers and it's so easy to get a picture of people you know slightly ahead of you and think god they seem so successful everything they do is just absolutely perfect and when you see how many rejections these people have had in the past it it just shows you that you know there is light at the end of the yeah. tunnel um, because I, I completely agree with you Ioni that I've I found it much more personally kind demoralizing. of exactly demoralizing <laughs> in in academia than I ever did on the wards where I felt in some ways you know I was although I was on my own fair bit I was still part of a kind of wider system yeah yeah I think that's definitely a topic for a, a future podcast um resilience in research and not being so it's it's hard especially when you're researching something like dementia not to become emotionally 
Im immersed in your research and when your research is going well you feel great and when research isn't going so well you feel awful and getting out of that kind of as you say cycle of peaks and troughs um on the cv of failures if you go onto twitter um that you can still go on the hashtag cv of failures and and they are on there and there are some astonishingly long lists but you only need to be successful once i think that's what you need yeah. to take away from that yeah. um so thank you all for coming in and thank you for listening. Again, if you want to get in contact, you can join the discussion on the hashtag ECR Dementia um, or use at Dem underscore researcher if you want to suggest any ideas for future podcasts um, or just get in touch with us and use the website dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.